Drug overdose deaths have really skyrocketed during the COVID-19 pandemic, possibly due to difficulties accessing healthcare and other resources being particularly limited. Recent data from the CDC indicates that in the 12 months leading up to April 2021, there were over 100,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States, and many overdoses occur in people who were initially legally prescribed pain medications for perfectly reasonable clinical indications. In fact, some studies show that of those who began abusing opioids, 75% of their first opioid was actually from a prescription drug. That really should make all of us nervous. One of our most tightly held vows as physicians is, first of all, do no harm. Back in 2018, Mayo Clinic researchers published a couple of studies about opioid prescribing with very important findings. The first finding was that there was a huge variation in the dosages and the quantity of opioids prescribed, sometimes even for the same procedures. The second important finding was that about two-thirds of the pills prescribed went completely unused, and about a third of the time, the patients never even fulfilled the prescription for opioid pills. So these findings really opened the door to begin thinking about how we prescribe opioid pain medications and to begin working to standardize opioid prescribing and tailor it to patient needs without leaving so many pain-killing opioid pills in people's homes where they could lead to inadvertent overdoses by family members or lead to addiction. Programs designed to reduce the risks of inadvertent narcotic addiction are called opioid stewardship programs. And this concept has been talked about for many, many years, but creating and implementing these programs is really not easy work. Back in 2018, less than a quarter of the United States acute care hospitals had an opioid stewardship program. But we know that we can and must save lives by doing a better job with opioid prescribing practices. So today, I'm gonna to introduce you to two colleagues at Mayo Clinic who have been working on our opioid stewardship program. Welcome to Key In to Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality, patient experience, and affordability. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Tim Morgenthaler, Vice Chair for Quality at Mayo Clinic. Co-hosting today is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Thanks, Dr. Morgenthaler. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. And you know, I was reading my local newspaper the other day, and I was really shocked to learn that in my actually very small community, four young people had overdosed on opioids recently, and two of which actually resulted in death. It's such a challenging issue on so many fronts right now, and even in very small communities. Yeah, you're, you're so right. It's not everywhere else. It's everywhere. That's right. So, so today, our guests are Dr. Helena Gazelka and Benjamin Lai. I have to tell you, I'm a bit nervous because Dr. Gazelka has been hosting an exceptional podcast, the Mayo Clinic COVID-19 News, and Dr. Lai has also been a guest on the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast. So we're really lucky to have them here. Dr. Gazelka, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, how long have you been at Mayo Clinic and what are you, what kind of things are you doing these days? Yes, thank you so much for having us here, Tim and Sherry. It's a delight for us to get to come and share a little bit about the work that so many have done on opioid stewardship. I am an anesthesiologist. I specialize in pain medicine and I also am boarded in palliative medicine and have done a fellowship. I have split my time between those specialties 
And currently I'm also serving as the chief communications officer for Mayo Clinic. So I've stepped out of clinical practice even a little bit more to do that. But opioid stewardship remains one of my passions. Wow. And thank you so much for sharing your talents with us. How about Dr. Lai? You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm a family physician based in Rochester. I did my training here at Mayo Clinic. After my training, I actually spent a few years in Northern California where many of my patients were on chronic opioids and had uh, opioid use disorder. And that's really where I became interested and really passionate on this topic. And when I returned to Mayo, I uh, got an opportunity to meet and start started working with Helena. And so I serve as the assistant medical director of our uh, opioid stewardship group. Fantastic. Dr. Gazelka, you could answer first, you know, tell us how you first got interested in this particular problem and how you kind of started working on it. Yes. Well, I was a physician assistant before I went to medical school, Tim. I worked in hematology and oncology, and I was very fascinated by our ability to manage patients' pain either appropriately or not as well as I would have hoped. And that's kind of what led me to go into pain medicine, the incredible number of interventional procedures and other modalities that are in our toolbox besides opioids. But opioid stewardship really became first and foremost for my career in 2016 when Dr. Mike Harper, who was at that time the chair of practice for Mayo Clinic, called me up one day out of the blue while I was doing procedures and said, Helena, I have a job for you. I said, okay. And he asked me to form a committee and look at opioid prescribing practices in Mayo Clinic. What are they like? What should they be like? And do we have any sort of guidelines that we provide for our providers so that they know how to prescribe opioids? So I admit, I first tried to talk him out of the job, offered him (laughs) the name of a colleague who was much more experienced in this area than I was. But what uh, an incredible opportunity. I am passionate about this field and have learned so much. I've had the joy of becoming a national expert in this area. And um, it's been a great experience. So since you didn't get a chance to get out of that assignment from Dr. Harper, how did you get started? Who did you involve? Oh, Sherry, I lost a lot of sleep. That's how I first started. (laughs) I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, this is for the entire enterprise. So we have at that time about 75,000 employees. And how do I even get a handle or a grasp on this? And I just started not only trying to better understand the epidemic and the roots of it, but also trying to talk to anyone at Mayo Clinic that I could find who is interested in the topic. And thankfully, I found a large multidisciplinary group of uh, physicians and nurses and pharmacists and researchers through the Kern Center, all of whom were interested in contributing in some way. And so we formed a working group, and I called it the Opioid Stewardship Program, primarily because opioids, in my opinion, are some of the most important medications that we have ever discovered. They've been around for thousands of years. This is not an anti-opioid movement. This is a pro-stewardship movement so that we use them appropriately. And uh, that's the premise that we have been based on. And it's been, it's been great work for the entire past six years. That's a great way to think about it. I, I really like that. You know, Dr. Lai, you know, you've, you know, as you kind of started this work, what did you find were your first initial challenges to help get this project off the ground? One of my colleagues said it best is that the pendulum keeps swinging with regards to the opioid epidemic. 
back 15 years ago, pain was the fifth vital sign, right? And so our responsibility at that point was to treat the patient's pain. And all of a sudden, the pendulum has swung the other way because we have seen the repercussions with regards to the previous practice. And I think a lot of us became confused. There was a lack of guidelines, really. We don't know what to do. Many of us have been practicing for a number of years, writing these opiate prescriptions in order to treat pain. And now we're told not to do so, or at least to do it in a very different way. So I think one of the biggest challenges for us was to find that medium, that fine balance, looking at the guidelines and finding the right types of education for providers, for patients, because we have to educate our patients in terms of saying, why is this not safe for you? And also for a lot of our supporting staff, like nurses. So our group did come up with a wealth of resources to help meet this important need. There have been numerous challenges along the way. And I think one of the biggest is the multifaceted origins that have led to the opioid epidemic. And so you, Sherry, had asked me earlier, well, where did you start and how did you figure out how to go forward with this? And what I would say is I started thinking about what can we control? So we can't control drugs coming, you know, in from China in the U.S. mail system. We can't control people with their pill mills, but we can, as physicians and providers, control what we write with our pen and be responsible with how we prescribe. In light of what you said earlier, Tim, that, you know, I think the statistics have been as high as 80% of heroin users started with a legitimate prescription for opioids. It might not have been their prescription, but it was a prescription given to someone by someone with a DEA number. And so being careful how long we prescribe opioids, how many we prescribe is what we can control as a medical community to help reduce the risk of long-term use of opioids, dependence on opioids and addiction to opioids. And you mentioned some of our work that we did through the Kern Center in your introduction, the studies that were performed. That was amazing, amazing work. They were so so surprising. I mean, I just want to compliment you on doing that. And so often, you know, as we strive to improve practice for patients and, and how we work, a key first step is finding out, well, what actually are we doing? You know, I started out in surgery, actually. I know that may surprise you, but, you know, as a surgical intern, you know, how do you learn what to write for pain medications? And at least back then, which I know was like, you know, bear skins and and sticks or something, you know, we were just told, write a prescription for this, this many. And so I think the work that you all did, you know, which, which really sort of said, well, how much is being written and what's the variability and how much do patients actually use? Wow, it blew all of our minds. I know you probably took a little flack about that initially, because that's how new findings often are regarded by the medical community. But man, that was just such important work. And I congratulate you on it. Well, thank you. I want to add quickly as well, you know, as I speak more and more to colleagues, especially I think in primary care, because primary care providers really write quite a bit of chronic opioid prescriptions. Many of us have this internal struggle. You know, we don't want our patients to suffer, yet we don't want to do the wrong thing. And it's really hard to find that balance. And I think the work that we did, that we started, and the work that we continue to do is to provide some guidance and some education to our prescribers in the front lines on how to do this safely and properly. So Dr. Lai, as you have gone on this journey with Dr. Gazelka, has there have been any things that have surprised you along the way? Well, I think what surprised me is that everyone wants some kind of standard, 
everyone is really trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. And the other thing that really surprised me is, we already mentioned that, is how many unused opioids there are after surgical procedures, for example. That, to me, is most surprising. And the fact that I wouldn't want to say the lack of, but just the confusion or the, the not knowing what to do. How do we screen for somebody with an opioid use disorder? Does that patient have an opioid use disorder or chronic pain? Am I giving too much opioids? What is too much opioids? When do I give naloxone? When do I start worrying, for example, about an overdose? All of these things that we intuitively knew before all this started that we should factor in when we start prescribing opioids, we didn't actually know how to institute these guidelines or changes or when to prescribe what. So that's what surprised me and how open people are, I think, to having some guidance and having support and help. Helena, anything else to add on your end? That has definitely been what has surprised me the most. I remember needing to go to the emergency department, to their physician's department meeting, and talk to them about the implementation of opioid stewardship. And that was before Casey Clements had really been working with us widely, and he has done so much work in emergency medicine in this field uh, along with us as, as part of our group. But I remember thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to throw tomatoes at me. And everyone said, yes, we need this. We want this. We want to be able to tell patients that there are limits on what we can give them in the emergency department. And we now have a three-day prescribing limit in every emergency department that Mayo Clinic runs as an absolute maximum. I think it's characteristic of physicians and actually everybody in healthcare. You know, if you say, well, what would you like to do, the right thing or the wrong thing? Of course, we want to do the right thing. But the logical question then is, okay, can you tell me what the right thing is? I just so much enjoyed watching the two of you and your whole committee, you know, work on this at Mayo Clinic, because as you know, we have a a bit of diversity here in terms of opinions uh, across many experts and so forth. But the way that you went about the work, I think is just a model because you went, you asked open questions, and then you provided data, which I know didn't come easily, but you provided data that really allowed people to see, oh, actually, I'll be serving my patients well if I only prescribe three days. That's really a, a reasonable approach. And then that really empowers us to act on what our inclination is, which would, you know, thank you. I would like to do the right thing. Thank you for telling me what it is. So that was just wonderful work there. Helena, maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit. So what do you have now in terms of a a stewardship program? What are the key components of it? What's the current state of of affairs? You know, I'm going to let Ben speak to that a little bit more than I do. But some of the proud things that we have accomplished are that we have implemented guidelines for both acute prescribing, so that's post-surgical or other acute reasons for pain management, bone fractures, et cetera, et cetera, and for chronic prescribing. And we have used an incredible body of not only literature that we have developed and data that we have collected, but also what is in the medical literature, what guidelines from other professional societies. And then our EHR work has been a huge body of work for us, implementing ways to help our providers do the right thing. So to make it as easy as we can for them. So we have a whole bunch of topics and Ask Mayo Expert that they can refer to. We have opioid calculator that's been built by our own Mayo Clinic engineers and put into the electronic health record. And so it's been amazing. I wanted to add one thing to that last topic we were talking about before I turn this over to Ben. And that is not only have we found that our providers want to do the right thing, But patients do too. There's sort of this suspicion or thought that patients are going to be upset 
if I tell them that they can't be on opioids or if they, I tell them that opioids aren't the right thing for this. But what I find is that most patients have taken opioids because they've been told they were the right thing to take for their condition. And if I, as a pain physician, go in and talk to them about all the other tools in the toolbox that I have to help them with their pain, inevitably, almost everyone who doesn't have an issue with dependence or addiction is delighted not to have to be long-term on opioids. So it's been really gratifying. The other thing that I think has been really important to our work is having champions from every specialty at the clinic be involved. So we didn't go into surgical practices and say, orthopedics, you have got to stop what you are doing, prescribing too many opioids. We got orthopedic surgeons to go to their own departments and we got general surgeons to go to their departments. And I think that was been so important. So that's one of the tools that we have too, is um, advocates throughout the enterprise. What would you add, Ben? I would say, Helena, many of the specialists come to us. They say, how can you help us? Because we'd like to change things for our own department. And so we're only too happy to help. I think as our program got evolved, people started to know who we are and the work that we do. It became easier and easier to find these champions across state lines, across departments. We have nurses, we have administrators, we have people of all level involved in, at Mayo Clinic. One of the things that we came up with are important metrics that we want to use to monitor our opioid prescribing. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the safest thing? And that took a lot of work because when we looked into Epic and, and Plumber Chart, we realized that there was dozens of potential metrics that we could capture. Well, we've looked at the CDC guidelines. We looked at some of the national hospital guidelines and so forth. We came up with the important guidelines that we think are important across practices and across state lines. So we've broken these uh, metrics into chronic opioid prescribing, acute, inpatient, and outpatient, we created a dashboard. We're now starting to really advertise this dashboard to various departments and practices, hoping that they would use this dashboard to improve their practices and to identify areas that could, they could improve on and to provide additional education. In addition to that, we created guidelines within our own institution, as Helena said, ASMEO experts. We walk providers through how to start opioids, how to continue opioids, how to prescribe naloxone and how to taper. As mentioned before, we have champions coming to us from different fields. And so we, now we have department-specific guidelines for prescribing for various procedures too. We've actually started to look into externalizing our work because we know that this work is not easy to do. And so we're hoping that some of our efforts can be replicated. We could provide some assistance to other institutions. And so we partnered up with some of our venture group and also with our MCCN group to spread the word. You had mentioned these dashboards and you look for some metrics. Of course, you won't be surprised to hear on a quality improvement podcast, we are interested in metrics. Maybe you could give our listeners an example of what is a typical or one of the metrics that you use maybe for, you know, you pick it, chronic opioid management. Happy to. So we actually have four important metrics that we think, regardless of what department you, you work in, you should pay attention to. So the first one is actually the number of your patients who are prescribed high doses of opioids. And by that, we define that as 90 morphine milligram equivalent per day. Why do we choose 90? Well, we know that people who are on a higher dose of opioids are at higher risk of overdose. Well, our second metric is looking at these patients 
and whether or not they're also using benzodiazepines concurrently. Again, these patients are at a high risk for overdose. A third important metric is looking at these patients who don't have a naloxone prescription on their medication list. We know these patients are at high risk for overdose, and so it's important that we provide the education on overdose and how to use naloxone, when to use, how to use, and what to do after use. And then the fourth metric that we hope everyone will embrace is to review their state's prescription drug monitoring mm. program before and periodically uh, when they issue any opioid prescriptions. That's important because that really helps us identify if the patient is compliant with their therapy, if there is any concerns for even diversion or double doctoring. And so that could help us identify some of these potential patients who might be at risk or a higher risk for opioid use disorder. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing those. You two have obviously led an enormous amount of work to get to where you are today with the stewardship program. So what's next? What's next on your radar? We had mentioned opioid use disorder. I think that's an area of focus that we need to look at now. We've done a pretty good job at being good stewards, but there are people who take opioids not just for pain because they have a craving for it, because they've developed a dependence and tolerance. And so the treatment for opioid use disorder is medications for opioid use disorder. So using things like buprenorphine, such as Suboxone or Methadone. So I, I think we're now looking into expanding the knowledge base of how to identify these patients and how to treat these patients, not just through specialty services, but also in primary care. So a lot of work is going into this right now, developing the infrastructure and the patient and provider education. In Minnesota, our Department of Human Services also looks into our prescribing metrics and they identify potential outlier prescribers. And uh, the Opioid Stewardship Group is working to help these outlier prescribers at Mayo or uh, with Mayo Clinic Health Systems in completing the mandatory quality improvement project that these providers are required to do by the state. Helena, anything else to add on your end? Well, I would add the one fun thing that we have coming out, Ben, which is our book, Mayo Clinic on Opioid Prescribing. Almost everyone in our group contributed a chapter or so. And then Holly Geyer, who was our opioid stewardship lead, she's an internist, a hospitalist in Arizona. She edited it and it's coming out within the next couple of months. So we're really excited yeah, about that's that. That's excellent news. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. So I, actually, I, I now already know the answer to, or at least part of the answer to the question I'm going to ask, which is, if you were at a center that maybe hasn't invested as much effort into a opioid stewardship program, you know, what would be the first few things that you would do? What do you think are the most important things, I guess, other than buying your book and reading it? But yeah. So I learn from others. So we published our work in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, an institutional approach to um, managing opioid stewardship in the opioid epidemic. And we basically, as a how-to of some of the things that we went through and some of the lessons that we learned, because you can be spared a lot of dead ends or, or difficulties if you have an idea what has worked for others. And I think that's incredibly useful. Yes, thank you so much. Well, you guys have done so much work and you know so much, we could go on asking questions for a long time, but unfortunately, I think we are coming to the end of our podcast. So we're really thankful that our listeners could join us today. We hope the information provided has been stimulating, insightful, valuable, 
I really do advocate uh, Helena's approach. It, you can always learn from mistakes, but it's a lot better to learn from other people's mistakes. So please, you know, take it, you know, avail That's yourselves right. of these kind of resources. Again, you know, today's Mayo Clinic Key into Quality podcast is part of our effort to help you take those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organizations. The development of this podcast is really part of our efforts to contribute and equip customers anywhere on the planet to improve their quality outcomes, their safety experience through consulting, education, and networking services. We do this really to serve all of you. So you can help us a lot if you would rate our podcast on your podcast platform. Let others know about the podcast so that the information can be helpful to others. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.